Good morning, everyone. Uh, our reading this morning will come from Romans verses, uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for the, those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness." If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. It's the word of the Lord. Morning. This is kind of where it gets good, right? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The glorious good news of Romans chapter 8 follows directly on the heels of Paul's description of what it was like to be under the law of Moses. Although the law was holy, righteous, and good, it was unfortunately not the only power or authority or law at work in the lives of those who lived under it. There was another law, Romans seven twenty three, at work in their members, the law of sin and death. And so however much those under the law delighted in God's good law and desired to live in obedience to it, they were always faced with this other law, the power of sin, operating within their own hearts, furiously battling against their good desire to please God and robbing them of the freedom to do what was right before God. And so however much they may have wanted to please God by living in obedience to His law, they all, without exception, ultimately failed. No one other than Jesus has perfectly kept the law of God. However hard they tried to perfectly keep God's good commands, the sin within them ultimately prevented them from doing so because they were still captive to the law of sin and death that was working within them. And so when Paul summarizes the reality of living under the law, at the end of chapter 7, he describes a wretched condition, verse 24, and emphasizes that apart from the grace of God in Christ Jesus, verse 25, the situation for such people remains bleak. They find themselves enslaved in service to the law of sin. The now in verse 1 of chapter 8, introduces an important change. Those under the law lived in slavery to sin, but that was then, and things are different now. 
There is a major difference between life under the law of Moses and life under the lordship of Christ Jesus. And Paul has already fleshed out in detail in chapter 7, verses 7 to 25, what he introduced in summary form in chapter 7, verse 5. He says, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. And now where we are in chapter 8, he begins to flesh out the theme first introduced in verse 6 of chapter 7, but now we are released from the law. I'll give you a second, 7, 6. Yeah, now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And so it's vitally important that we recognize the contrast Paul is portraying between life under the law and life in the Spirit of God. The New Testament spends an incredible amount of time helping us to see the difference between life under the law and life in the Spirit. Life in the flesh versus life in the Spirit is a very common theme throughout the letters of the New Testament. And that is because those in the church oftentimes find themselves operating as those under the law, find themselves operating in the flesh despite the freedom that God has granted them in Christ Jesus. And so this is why Romans tells us that we ought to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. There has to be a mindset change within those who truly are saved. And so Romans 8, 2, and the first part of verse 3 says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For what God, for God has done, sorry, what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. So there's something that the law could not do that God has now done in the Spirit for His people. The law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So Paul's already made us aware of the, that the law of Moses was not the only law or authority at work in people's lives. Sinful desire exercised greater authority upon the person than the law of Moses ever could, leaving the old covenant people of God enslaved under the law of sin and death. Two laws were at work. They were under the law of Moses, but that law did not ultimately press them in to sanctification and genuine obedience because there was another law at work, the law of sin and death. And this law corrupted their desires. This law brought death where the law promised life. So two laws are at work, but now in Romans chapter 8, we see that a new law is in town. A new authority working through even greater desires than are evoked by sin. This third law, the law of the spirit of life, has set all believers free in Christ Jesus from the dominion of sin. Again, see the drastic contrast. The law of Moses only ended in subjugation to the law of sin. But the new law of the Spirit supersedes the law of Moses and frees us from the law of sin and death. It does what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. It actually sanctifies God's people. So verses 2 to 4 uh, as a whole explain the reason why condemnation no longer exists for those in Christ. 
Now, verse 1 has often been abused as a defense mechanism against genuine conviction for sin. No condemnation has been the rallying cry of those who want Jesus as Savior but not as their Lord, who want to go on boldly sinning like the sinners they are, all while claiming eternal salvation. It happens quite often that when we read a passage of Scripture that gives us a commandment and tells us that we must obey or talks about a sin and tells us that we must cease to sin in this way, it, it almost invariably happens that someone comes and talks to me and says, but there's no, no condemnation for those in Christ, right? And what they mean is, I have that problem and I'm probably not going to change. So hopefully, there's no condemnation. But is Paul saying, go ahead and sin because there is no more condemnation? No, not at all. The reason here is given why believers are not under condemnation. The reason given is that they have been freed from the tyranny of sin and the dominion which it exercises over those under the law. Remember the issue that Paul was addressing with his letter to the Romans. Some Jewish Christians were concerned that his law-free gospel would promote sin. They thought if the Gentile Christians were not taught to follow the law of Moses, they would not be sanctified, but would continue to live sinful lives. But Paul teaches that the exact opposite was true. It was through the law of Moses that the Jews experienced only slavery to sin, and it is only through the gospel that they could be set free from that slavery. Sanctification does not come through the law. That's pointless. But it comes by grace and through faith alone. Remember that Paul communicates the purpose of his ministry both at the beginning and end of this letter, Romans 1, 5 and 16, 26. His purpose was to bring about the obedience of faith. And the law could not do this. You know, we Christians, we often assume that the Old Testament saints were just like us, born again and empowered by the Spirit of God. But remember, this is what was promised about the new covenant through God's promise, or through God's prophets, sorry. This was the promise God gave through passages such as Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. We've been reading them, but I'll read Ezekiel 36, 26, 27 again. God's promise to His people is, I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. And so it was only with the institution of the new covenant through the death and resurrection of Jesus that God finally put his spirit in all of his people and gave them new hearts that are eager to please him. And this is what Paul was talking about when he refers to the law of the spirit of life. And so the reason here that believers are no longer under condemnation is that when they embraced the gospel, God's own spirit set them free from the tyrannical power of sin and death, accomplishing what the law could not do in sanctifying his people, bringing about the obedience of faith. Now, these verses, verses 2 to 4, not only convey the reason why there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, but also the means by which the power of sin is broken. How has God done this? How has God brought about no condemnation? Verse 3, 
For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit." And so the basis for no condemnation in the lives of believers is that something else has been condemned instead of us. God has condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus Christ. And for those who are in Christ, that is, those who have embraced the gospel Paul preached, the sin that was woven throughout their flesh has now been condemned and put to death. The sacrificial... sacrificial, Death of the Son of God was the means by which sin was condemned. Jesus took upon Himself the punishment that those who violate God's law deserve. This is why earlier in Romans, Paul could say that Christians have died to sin. By literally carrying out the death penalty on the sin that was within us, God has set us free from the bondage of sin. For those who are in Christ, their sin has already received its due punishment. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because our sin was already condemned in the body of Christ. And so we have been taught the reason why there is no condemnation for those in Christ. Verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We have been told how God has overcome the dominion of sin in our lives. Verse 3, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh. And then verse 4 conveys the purpose of Jesus' condemnation. Why was Jesus condemned? in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. God has set us free, church, in a way to live that actually fulfills the righteous requirement of the law. We are no longer bound by sin to walk according to the flesh, but instead we are now free to walk according to the Spirit. This is how the obedience of faith comes about. Through the gospel, God fundamentally changes who we are. And so the judicial work of Christ is the basis for the transformed life of His people, which, to say more simply, is that our sin was condemned in Christ Jesus in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. See, we we often miss a step here in Paul's logic, and this this is very important. We often, and rightly, say that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus because He suffered condemnation for sin in our stead. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, you cannot. I won't judge anyone. That is true. But there's an intermediate point here in verse 2. There's something that takes place between the condemnation of Christ and there being no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Verse 2 has, has a step in between. Here Paul says that there is now no condemnation for those in Christ because the spirit of life has set them free from the power of sin and death. The logic seems to be that a transformed life is evidence that believers are considered not guilty in God's law court. Salvation in Christ is so much more than merely taking away the punitive judgment. Here, Paul does not just say that Christ was condemned so that we won't have to be. Christ took our condemnation in order that the righteous requirement would be fulfilled in us. Ephesians 2.10 says something similar. It says that God's people were created in Christ Jesus for good works. So, it is right to say that Christ was condemned, and so there is no condemnation for those in Christ. But this intermediate step that Paul's talking about is sanctification. There is something that takes place that shows, yes, indeed, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Now, it's important to distinguish between fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law and keeping or observing the commandments of the law. Those under the law attempt to keep or observe its commandments, and they ultimately fail to obey. Christians, however, are not under the law. They do not follow the Old Testament law, and and yet they end up fulfilling its righteous requirements anyway. Our obedience is without reference to the law because in the new covenant, God's law is written on new hearts which have been empowered by the Holy Spirit to live lives that are pleasing to God. Christians no longer live to please our old fleshly desires, but instead live according to the Spirit who is holy. We also see from verse 4 that the righteous requirement of the law is not fulfilled automatically. It happens as God's people walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. Much of what Paul's going to talk about here is automatic. It's something that God does, but where we're given instruction, where we're told what to do, it is vital that we understand this is how God is bringing this about, that we would choose to walk according to the Spirit. We have a choice to make. Believers have been freed from slavery to sin, but that doesn't mean that we don't still wallow in it. Personal choice and action is now necessary. We must consider ourselves, Romans 6.11, dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We are now free to reject a life lived based on the demands of the flesh and the sinful desires which plague us and instead choose day by day to live according to the leading of God's own Spirit that dwells within our new born-again hearts. The language of walking makes it clear once again that Paul's focus here is not on our status before God, it is on how we conduct our lives. Christ did not only come to set us free from the penalty of sin, He came to set us free from the power of sin. Our conduct, though, flows out of our changed identity. And this is made clear in verse 5. For those who live according to their 
sorry, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, there's an interesting choice of translation here, which has obscured something very important in what God is saying to us in this passage. The problem is that Paul did not use any word here at all that means live. And so, some older translations reflect the Greek text more closely and effectively. Uh, we look now to the New American Standard. It says that for those who are according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So, in the original Greek, there is no word live. It's not those who live according to the Spirit but those who are according to the Spirit versus those who live according to the flesh or those who are according to the flesh. So, Paul contrasts those who are according to the flesh with those who are according to the Spirit. The word live is an unfortunate addition because live tends to make us think of a choice to act in a certain way. And where to walk in the Spirit is a choice to act in a certain way. To be of the Spirit is not a choice to act in a certain way. To be of the flesh is is not a choice. It is who we are fundamentally. Paul's not now saying that those who choose to live according to the Spirit should set their minds on the things of the Spirit, but rather that Christians have become people who are, who exist, who find their being in the Spirit, and therefore we obviously set our minds on things of the Spirit. And so verse 5 is a reminder, not merely an instruction to the audience that they ought to set their minds, but a reminder that they are those who do. Because the Spirit has made us alive, we naturally fix our attention on what He wants. Remember, the continuous refrain of the New Testament is, be who you are. And so, verse 5 is a reminder of who Christians are. They are those according to the Spirit. And those who are according to the Spirit have their, their minds set on things of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians talks about the person who is married versus the person who's unmarried. And it talks, says that the person who is married has a divided focus. Not only are they concerned about the things of God and how they can live holy lives, but they are also concerned about the needs and desires of their spouse. Whereas a single person uh, can have a, a more focused desire and con- control over their life. They're, they're only anxious about the things of God, to, to live holy lives and to glorify God with their lives. What's interesting about this is in both cases, Paul assumes that the Christian is constantly concerned with holiness and how they are going to bring glory to God, how they are going to live lives worthy of the call. So, Paul's not here saying, look, if you want to be spiritual, set your minds on spiritual things. Paul's saying, if you are of the Spirit, this is already the case. If you don't have time alone, if you're, if you're on a long drive alone or you're walking alone or you're in the shower, you're thinking, and you don't have a thought, how can I live a more God-glorifying life? You may not be a Christian. I'm not trying to be mean to you. I'm trying to help you to understand what Paul's saying here. Those who are according to the Spirit have their minds set on things of the Spirit. 
It may not be the only thing, and we may need to focus better, but the reality is if we are according to the Spirit, we are wondering, God, how can I glorify you? How can I live a more holy life? How can I be sanctified? God, transform me. We have this meditation. It is the deepest desire of our heart to glorify God once we have been saved. And so Paul isn't communicating that we ought to set our minds on the Spirit, although that is something we ought to do, but he's communicating that this is the natural result of being someone who is in the Spirit. We are no longer just thinking about the things of the flesh, and they distract us sometimes. They, they sure do. But we keep on having the, out of the, the natural self in the Spirit, the, the natural outworking of being in the Spirit is that we have our minds set on things of the Spirit. Because the Spirit has made us alive, we naturally fix our attention on what He wants. And what Paul begins to communicate in verses 5 to 11 is that those who choose to walk by the flesh or by the Spirit do so because they are of the flesh or of the Spirit. His argument is that behavior stems from the being or nature of a person. Either we are those of the flesh or we are those of the Spirit. And so the attention here is not to say that believers are partly dominated by the flesh and partly by the Spirit. No, Paul argues that those who have the Spirit will manifest the mindset of the Spirit fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law because they have the Spirit. He continues, verse 6, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For Paul, the disconnect between sinner and sanctification is the mind. This is why most of the imperatives we find in the Roman letter are commands to think a different way. For example, uh, we've already given it twice, Romans 6.11, so you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Our mind has to consider things the way God does. We have to see the truth of the matter. We are dead to sin and alive to God. What do we need to do then in response to that? Christ has made us dead to sin and alive, alive to God we must consider that so. More famously is Romans 12, 2, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So Paul often is telling us that we need to think differently. If, if the reality is already so, then we need to think it is so. We need to be transformed by the renewal of our mind in the truth of God's Word. We need to consider ourselves dead to sin, church. Now, when we talk about the mind, we're not talking about a necessary intelligence. Uh, you know, uh, you have to be this smart to be saved or, or, uh, or a Gnostic deeper knowledge, but heart meditation upon simple gospel truth, which can be comprehended only by God's Spirit. When I, when I look upon God's good law, which promises life to those who keep it and death to those who don't, it exposes me as a sinner deserving death. Some here may even be living the experience that Paul described recently in chapter 7, rather than a life of freedom from slavery to sin. 
They're still in that miserable condition, that wretched condition of being unable to do the right thing they want to do and are constantly doing the evil that they don't want to do. It is not as though we should just say, oh, there's no condemnation. It, it doesn't really matter. And then go on living just the same. Instead, we should know that this is an untenable situation. This is unacceptable in the life of a believer. But it's not as though I should then go back to the law, understanding that the one who sins shall die, and then try harder to keep the commandment. Instead, the solution is to remember who we are. I am dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Praise God. Prayerful meditation on the gospel is the solution. It is the means for sanctification. Sanctification by faith alone. Now we know that anything less than having life in the Spirit results in death... But are we then really experiencing the abundant life and peace that is a result of setting our minds on the things of the Spirit? For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. If you lack peace as a believer, the first thing to ask yourself is whether it is due to the fact that you are allowing your mind to fall back into the old habit of focusing on things of the flesh. If you focus on the flesh, you will not have peace. Now, focusing on the flesh doesn't mean uh, focusing on things we typically view as sinful, or it doesn't just mean that. It it is the concerns of Matthew 6.31. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? When we focus on the things of God, our lives are filled with life and peace. We no longer worry about the things that concern other people. We trust God with all the things of the flesh, which He promises to provide for us. Instead, our our meditation is on how can I glorify God? How can I live in greater obedience to Him? What would my Lord have me do? When we meditate on the gospel of peace, the good news that we have received eternal life in exchange for death, we have been promised to enjoy every heavenly blessing Jesus Himself deserves, and not of our own earning, but the free gift of God, we will enjoy an incredible peace. But if we allow our minds to drift back to the flesh, we have no shortage of things to worry about. Death What will we eat and wear, our reputations, our legacy? How will we fulfill all of our desires, inundated with worry and fear that we have no need for? The Holy Spirit, through Paul, wants to remind us who we are in Christ. Catch this so that you don't misunderstand what this passage is communicating. You know, we, we love formulas. It gives us a sense of confidence and control when we have a three-step plan for spiritual success. We, we're driven to earn salvation and the blessings of God, and so we like to take the Word of God and reduce it to a checklist. So we could read it like this. Walk according to the Spirit. Check. Set mind on things of the Spirit. Check. Live according to the Spirit. Check. The the pitfall of formulas is that it leads to boasting. We tell others, if you would only do what I did, then you would accomplish what I have. 
We could easily twist the very purpose of the Word of God here by preaching and applying a three-point formula. Think, walk, live. If we just set our minds on the things of the Spirit, walk according to the Spirit, live according to the Spirit, we will have life and peace. The problem is that this is a reverse order of what Paul presents here. It is the wrong order and opposite the gospel. The gospel Paul presents here is that, a new, is that new life in the Spirit and God's own Spirit to dwell in us. Sorry, I messed that up. The gospel is that new life in the Spirit produces a new mindset and walk. Let me say that again because I confused it. New life in the Spirit given to us by God produces a new mindset and walk. God saves. God gives new hearts and His own Spirit to dwell in us. And when we receive the Spirit, it invariably changes the way we walk, live, and think. To have the Holy Spirit at work in our born-again hearts is to think and live and walk this way. It is out of the overflow of the heart, the mind thinks, the mouth speaks, and the body acts. Jesus said, Luke 6, 43 to 45, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good, and the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. The flesh produces wicked fruit. Mark 7.21, which Leighton preached on last week, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. This is what naturally comes out of the heart of man. This is the heart of stone. This is without the Spirit. But out of the new heart and the new spirit of life, whoever believes in Jesus, John 7, 38, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And this is what Paul is saying as well. But life of the Spirit is characterized by minds set on things of the Spirit and walking according to the Spirit, which results in the righteous requirement of God being fulfilled out of the new natural way of being. Again, it is only God who does this work of giving new hearts of flesh and granting His own Spirit to dwell within believers. Those who are still merely flesh are completely hopeless and helpless to rescue themselves. Romans 8, 7 to 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. What Paul is saying here harkens back to what he was describing in chapter 7, 14 to 25. Those who are in the flesh 
chapter 7, verse 14, are sold under sin and do not obey God's law. Indeed, they cannot. Paul is not speaking of a physical inability to keep God's law. It is not as though God gave impossible laws that nobody could keep. There's no physical inability, but a moral inability to keep God's law. It is not that people have no free will, but that the will is not willing. The will of those in the flesh is set upon the desires of the flesh. It cannot desire the things of God. It cannot submit to God's commands. And one does not just make a decision to change their thinking and their actions and then receive life as a reward. That would be contradictory to the gospel of grace to think this way. So when it says those who are of the flesh cannot please God, it's not saying, so stop being of the flesh. We can't change ourselves. We can't give ourselves the Holy Spirit. This is the work of God. This is why God alone saves, and this is why it is a gospel of grace alone. We can't save ourselves. Ephesians 2, 4-9 says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Where verses 5 to 8 tell us about the wretched state of those in the flesh, in verse 9, Paul assures his audience that his expectation is that they aren't in the flesh but in the Spirit. And this is why it is only their thinking that he challenges them to change. He says, verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So if you belong to Jesus, the Spirit of God lives in you. Every single genuine Christian who has ever lived has been given God's Holy Spirit to live within them. This is a, an important passage for those who think that there is some sort of second blessing where some Christians do and some Christians don't have the Holy Spirit. This passage tells us all those who belong to God all those who are His people have the Holy Spirit. Every single genuine Christian who has ever lived has God's Holy Spirit to live within them. And by definition, such people are no longer in the flesh. They are now in the Spirit. All those who have the Spirit, all who belong to God have the Spirit, all who have the Spirit are in the Spirit, and those who are in the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit, and those who are in the Spirit begin more and more to walk according to the Spirit. Don't miss the contrast between verses 8 and 9. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 
But praise God, if you're a believer, you are not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit. The implication of this contrast is that believers are made capable to obey, capable to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law through their new nature in Christ. The sign and seal of being God's children is the Holy Spirit with the evidence of new obedience in which God is experienced as our Father. The Spirit's witness that we are God's children cannot be separated from obedience to the Father. Those who are children are also heirs. But this inheritance is also conditioned upon obedience. This is why some people struggle so much with the idea of the sovereignty of God in saving people and the doctrine of election because they see the Bible clearly has these conditions which must be met for salvation. And others ignore the conditions the Bible sets for salvation and just kind of have this greasy grace that's like, well, God saved you and now it doesn't matter what you do. But the Bible say, says both these things. It says that God saves you. You can't regenerate your heart. You were dead in your trespasses and sin when God made you alive. And yet, the, it still lays out these conditions, necessary conditions for salvation. But the, the emphasis on conditions here doesn't detract from the gospel of grace, nor the main theme of chapter 8, which is the assurance of believers the assurance believers can have of their own salvation. The Spirit of God who dwells within all Christians will overcome all obstacles and guarantees that believers will meet all the necessary conditions. Preaching the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, does not mean that we simply ignore the conditions the Bible clearly lays out for eternal life, because the Spirit does not work despite conditions, but through them. The conditions are one means by which the promises are realized. Those who have the Spirit live according to the Spirit walk according to the Spirit, have their minds set on the things of the Spirit. Those who have the Spirit will fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. We will walk in obedience. God will complete the work that He has started in us. He will show us faithful on the day of Christ Jesus. When Christ returns, we will be judged faithful because of the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Bringing it back to the, the very beginning, we, we have these things. We are not condemned. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But Paul does not immediately skip to because Jesus was condemned. From the condemnation of Jesus, we have that middle step. Jesus was condemned so that we will fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. That is why there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. continues and ends in verse 10 and 11. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. 
Simply put, Paul means that though our physical bodies are still going to die because of what sin has brought into creation, that reality cannot change the fact that those who have the Spirit now have life because of righteousness. Life because of righteousness. Because the Spirit of life produces the obedience of faith. Life because the Spirit fulfills the righteous requirement of obedience to God's commands in us. We have life not just because it's been said so, but we have life because God is actually producing righteousness in us, bringing about the obedience of faith, bringing about the righteous requirement of the law being fulfilled in us who have the Spirit. Though we are still dying physically, we are spiritually alive because God has given us His righteousness through Jesus Christ. In addition, the presence of the Spirit demonstrates that believers will not be saddled with their weak and corruptible bodies forever. The Spirit is a life-giving Spirit, and He will overcome sin and death through resurrection of the body. All this is possible because the Spirit that dwells in all believers is the same Spirit that raised Christ Jesus in triumph from the dead and is now producing life through the Spirit in us, causing us to walk with the Spirit, causing us to set our minds on the things of the Spirit, and giving to us life lavishly and without withholding. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for Your perfect Word which You apply to us by Your own Spirit. Lord, if we have Your Spirit in us, we do not need to be taught the truth because we recognize the truth when we hear it. We have Your Spirit showing us and teaching us. And Lord, whatever confusion I've brought to the matter this morning, I pray that You would bring clarity through the study of Your Word this week that we would understand what you are speaking to your church, that salvation is so much more than simply a get-out-of-jail-free card, more than not having the punitive judgment, but it also includes the sanctification of faith. And Lord, I pray that we would see Paul's main points here, that the law did not produce the sanctification, but only by grace only through your Spirit. And in this way, we would give you all the glory. Glorify your name, we pray, through your word applied to your church. Forgive us where we have gone back to the law, gone back to try to earn the blessings or to avoid the curses, or where we have focused on the flesh, but give us the peace you promise as your Spirit works in us to set our minds on things of the Spirit. Grant us your peace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise you, God. Let's continue to respond to God's great goodness to us.